grief is a sneaky bitch. I really think that uh, talking about it, and that's why we're doing what we're doing with Flatwater Foundation and trying to get people to talk and, and dive right in and work with a professional so that you can really get the full spectrum like like talking with you. Um, I mean, this podcast is like therapy for me. It's making me oh. think about making me think about these things that we don't necessarily always think about because I do get very caught up in the work that we're doing trying to build a large organization. Hi again. Welcome to another episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm so glad you're here. So I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer, and some of my other titles in life include social worker, former therapist, widow, mother, and founder of Reimagining Grief. I'm on a mission to change the narratives of grief, and this podcast is one of the ways I'm taking that on. So I'm so glad you're joining me on this journey today. I am Mark Garza, and I'm the founder and executive director of Flatwater Foundation, a nonprofit that was started to create access to mental health support for families uh, touched by a cancer diagnosis. In today's episode, I was joined by Mark Garza, an active, passionate, and dedicated man who is carrying on his family's tradition of honoring those we lost by giving back to the community. Mark shares how loss was discussed and addressed in his childhood after learning about the loss of his twin sister. He speaks openly and honestly about how his family both did and didn't encourage raw, authentic expressions of grief. He shares how his own challenging search to find accessible mental health services in the wake of his father's cancer diagnosis snowballed into a nonprofit foundation that has provided more than $4 million in mental health services to families affected by cancer. He acknowledges that while his work and life's mission is to ensure that everyone has access to support along their grief journey, he often relies on the just keep busy mentality to avoid doing his own work, a habit I can certainly relate to. So I began my conversation with Mark the way I begin each of these episodes, by asking him to explore his earliest experiences of loss in his life. I invited him to reflect on what those expressions of grief looked like and what that taught him as he faced the loss of his father nearly six years ago now. Yeah, it's actually, I really like this question because so many years later, um, you know, in my 30s and now my 40s, I still reflect on on that, thinking about kind of how it ties into what I'm doing today for work. But I was born uh, in the late 70s. I was born in 1977, but I was born um, a twin. And uh, I had a twin sister, uh, Christina, who, you know, I still remember the day when I was probably around six years old when I discovered, um, kind of had a discovery, which led to a conversation with my mother at the time, uh, my mom and dad, but mostly my mom. I remember talking to my mom about um, a piece of article, uh, I'm sorry, an article of clothing that I'd found um, in something in the closet and had a conversation and found out that I was, in fact, a twin. And, and uh, at, at birth, that my twin sister um, didn't make it. She was not able to live. There, there were several complications with both of us, but um, fortunately here in Austin, Texas, 
rushed us over to the NICU, and, and, and my life was, was saved. And she, um, unfortunately, has been, wasn't able to, but she has fortunately been with me my entire life. So it's kind of, it's kind of a neat story. It, 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 I remember at that young, young age going through the emotion of discovery, understanding, feeling something, but the full confusion, I think, um, at that young age is what, what, what was really the most overwhelming thing. And it's interesting today, now in my 40s, that there's still a lot of confusion. Um, mm-hmm. Confusion is a big part of what we go through and lack of clarity on, on kind of all of it. But I think I learned that at a very young age. And I'm fortunate for that. I feel very fortunate for that because I think about it often. I think about what was done uh, and what became of it. Um, really the short of it is many years later, my father in 1990 created a nonprofit. Uh, he was a dentist in the Austin area and created a nonprofit called Christina Smile in her memory. And we can get more into that. But what was done with that uh, to celebrate my twin sister, to celebrate her existence, even if only for a day on this earth, um, is something that's very important to me. Yeah, yeah. So you discovered this news that you were a twin at age six. And were there open conversations, it sounds like, around the house about her life and her death and about what it means to grieve? So it sounds like from – is that correct early on or there was really it a little – There really wasn't – there really was not. Okay. Um, I think I – you know, I had a father who uh, – my late father who at the time um, didn't really want to talk about it because it made it real. Yeah, and I only understand that because I talked within the last year, um, you know, some thirty-five years later with my mother about it. But the, it was something we didn't talk about. It was something that he didn't want to talk about. But my mother um, had a very different reaction to the whole thing, and I feel like she really did want to. Um, and it was her that I worked with about what the reality and the truth was. So to me, it was just a very head-on conversation um, about the reality and what had happened, but it was still something that I was, as a child, had to to kind of come to terms with and deal with, and whether I did or didn't um, was up to me. And so I decided to just kind of get through the notion of it by thinking happy thoughts. And if you you fast forward um, to middle school and the loss of one of my teammates, uh, my sports teammates and and closest friends, uh, lost his father, and that's really where I remember for the first time really addressing it because there was actually a ceremony. You know, there wasn't any sort of ceremony or anything. This was six years later when I when I found out about my sister. Right, right. I remember really thinking about my friend, um, his, his father suddenly passing. Every day, I now live in Georgetown and drive to Austin, and I drive past on I-35. I drive past the cemetery in, in middle school that we went to to bury him, and I often think about that moment. Um, but it was a celebration. Uh, mm-hmm. They had a son and a daughter, an older daughter, who was actually in school with my sister and the mom. And it was a big celebration of the 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 meaning he gave to all of us in sports and in our lives. And I'm very, very fortunate to have kind of a, um, a let's talk about it experience, um, talking about what we went through, talking about what he meant and recognizing that he was gone and that he had passed and actually getting that great closure, which 
um, we don't always get to have to, to the ability to go to a ceremony right. to celebrate his life and then really have a, a celebration of life. I think that's something that has been recurring in my life. Uh, whenever I lose somebody close to me, I then again lost a friend, uh, a peer and a, and a classmate at Brown University uh, in, in the year 2000, um, that once again it comes around and it's the the celebration um, of life and what he did in the world, uh, the president of the United States was at his ceremony. Wow. <laughs> was, yeah, wow. Was, wow. And the president is why we were at the ceremony. His father was an ambassador. And, like, it's just just a huge celebration piping his voice in to the, to the, to the audience, to the, over the speakers. Um, I think what I take from it was not just celebrating, not celebrating a death, but really taking a moment to honor those that have passed and – Talk about what they mean to us and the accomplishments, but um, but also be okay being sad. And um, we learn these lessons early on, and we don't even realize they're happening. Uh, but I feel very fortunate that early on, early on in my life, I did go through that, and I still remember it like it was weeks ago. Both of them, both when I was around six, and then in middle school. Um, so, fortunately, I was surrounded by people that that did have open conversations and say, "Let's talk about it." Yeah. That's that's a lot of loss to go through already by the time you're in your 20s, by the time you're in school. And it sounds like, as you were indicating, you had some different models in terms of what it means to process grief and loss. Your mom maybe was feeling compelled to talk about it, but also she was part of a family unit that had other people like your father who didn't want to talk about it. And then it's beautiful the way you sort of reflect on the in a way, the gift that you got to see other family member or other families, like your friends' families, modeling a different kind of grieving process, and to think about it as a celebration. I'd love to get into a little bit more about, you know, you talked, you just spoke beautifully, and I, knowing you a little bit, I gather that you are definitely a kind of person who thinks about that happy and the moving forward and the kind of the the joy, the appreciation for life, and. In those early years or over time, have you learned to be comfortable sitting in the sad and the sorrow and the anger and sort of the entire spectrum of the emotions? Or what has that journey been for you? Yeah, I think actually, um, I, I think to a fault, <laughs> <laughs> balance is everything, right? Um, balance on both sides of the coin. I think I don't have a very strong ability to do that. Um, and it's something that I've in, in my own personal work and in, in going through the, the therapy and the work that I've done um, after losing my father, I think it's something that that I think I could definitely do um, and be better at and do do in a much stronger manner. So um, I think that is the ultimate gift because it's very easy to, to go find solace and celebration and it's very easy to go think about the positivity because sometimes we mask ourselves or cloak, our, cloak ourselves in the, the ability to go celebrate positivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that happens And it's encouraged in our culture Exa- too, right? Ex- Be exactly. happy all the time. And if you're not happy, that's somehow a failure on your part and you just need to like get your shit together and figure it out. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why I think that what we've created with Flatwater Foundation to, to these families that have been affected by cancer is that's where you kind of need help. You need you need that professional um Often people say, "No, I'm I'm fortunate. I'm blessed to, that I have a good, a good strong family unit, or I have great friends. I don't need counseling. And I don't need therapy." And yeah. what I've discovered is, yes, but your friends and your family are very good at trying to keep you above water, exactly. and they're very good at telling you, 
look how incredible. Look what this person accomplished. Look how great this focusing on positive because nobody wants to go down into that little that little dungeon of And we of, don't know how to hold pain. It, we don't know how to hold our own pain and we don't know how how to hold other people's pain. Right. And we especially don't know how to do it when it's someone that we care about. Right. So our tendency is to show up and as you said, kind of buoy and bring yes. above water and support and fix. Right. And so the professional nature of just like the life-saving care that I was able to receive and finally get access to and be able to to to, to afford um, through my journey uh, after losing my father really was that work. And that's the professional support of a counselor and somebody. I, I tell people all the time that you have a great, great network and a great family around you, but this care that you can get um, – is worth it because you're also going to be able to discover how to handle that, how to grieve, how to cope, um, and having conversations, being okay with conversations and emotions and feelings that aren't all positive and happy. Yeah. But until we process and get through those, which I'll be completely frank, I don't know that I've really been able to fully do. I know I haven't been able to fully do. Um, even six years after the loss of my father, I think it's something that really sticks with you. But in talking about it, um, I've actually, in, you know, with a professional, with therapist through therapy, I've been able to, to handle a lot more um, finding comfort and being able to talk about those and get in those situations. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and something you said just resonated for me, which is I think we're always we're on a quest and a journey to sort of get comfortable with, explore, reflect, listen into our inner teacher all the time for the rest of our lives. So it's not necessarily like we're going to do it and then like check it off the list and we're going to be done. You know, I think all of our growth learning happens over the course of our lifetime. And for certain, our grief journey and our relationship with grief and loss, you know, evolves over time. And really, it's about the commitment to finding the safe spaces like you talked about with therapists and others to really dive deep and explore sitting with and attending to the parts of our emotional spectrum that we aren't so comfortable with. And some people are much more comfortable with sort of sorrow. Or I had a guest on yesterday who talked about his grief looked like anger. And especially in his growing up life, um, it didn't look like that when he lost his four-year-old son because he had done a lot of work before then. So some people's work, grief work looks a lot like anger. And for them, it's actually sitting with things like sadness. And for other people, Sadness is where they're okay with sitting and exploring and being in touch with, and it's anger or or even just figuring out how to access the joy and the happy side of life, you know. So I think there is no one right way to navigate this work. It's really about being open to the idea that we have a very complex set of emotions that we need to get comfortable attending to. Right. Yeah. The 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 notion that you that you bring up there of of what it looks like is interesting to me because what I found is because of those early experiences and that notion of, okay, you know, let's celebrate these people and let's, let's find the joy and find the honor. I really think that with the diagnosis, not just the diagnosis, but the journey my father was going through, um, those emotions of grief before, before death, um, being told that you're going to die, you have a eight months, eight to 12 months to live through a, a terminal prostate cancer diagnosis. It, it begins then, uh, and that journey for me looks a lot. Um, it looks a lot different, um, less as anger and more as what I would call. Uh, and I think it's very common, but what I would call kind of creating tasks, you know, tasks and work, and getting very buried in in 
in what needs to get done because of this um, mixed with a celebration. What I mean by that is with the news of my father and then my journey finding that help through therapy, for me coping was creating this entire what became an organization, what became a foundation that was then created with the mission to provide access to therapy. But it wasn't that. At first, it was just an event. So I'm a producer. Background on me was that I worked at global ad agencies and created ad campaigns and and managed creatives, uh, the relationship with creatives in in large Fortune 500 companies. And so I was able to take kind of what I knew how to, to sell or create a message or an event around a cause and flip that over into the product. I mean, sorry, for a product, flip that over to being for a cause, which was mental health. And so I created an event in Austin, Texas that we, you know, branded as Damn That Cancer. And it was going to be a 21-mile paddleboard, find some uh, event, a paddleboard journey from damn to damn, 21 miles, 10 hours, all day long, and created something that was was created as a as a PR stunt to get people out there thinking about, wow, mental health is important around therapy. Um, and it was an event, but what it really created was um, some, something very big, way bigger than all of us and our family to honor my father, to honor the journey, but to make sure others didn't have to go through what I was going through um, so they could be a little bit more aware up front about looking at therapy and counseling and what it means. Yeah. And so I got super busy. And then a week after that first PR stunt slash event to get on the news and do interviews and talk about why we're paddling and we're paddling to create some awareness around the importance of therapy, created a week later an organization that was dedicated to raising the funds 100% allocated for those in need that can't afford it, that don't have the money, the, the means to get access to this and they're touched by cancer to pay their bill. And so here we are, almost 10 years later, still paying the bill. We've done over $4 million worth of therapy for these families in Austin through peer-to-peer fundraising. But I got very busy very quickly and created an organization um, that I'm now the executive director of, but created this organization early on and was working 80, 90-hour weeks. <laughs> so it, it, was, it, was, it wasn't as much grieving as it was the manifestation of how I wanted to honor my father with this work and honor him by working hard and honor him by the that with the values that he had raised me and taught me you know not the not the nice have a nice touchy-feely soft conversation about it and sit down with him all the time but it was just make him proud by burying myself working really hard and creating something that would 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 ultimately create change in the world um i I, that was the model i had yeah because we talk about the models and he, my well, father. Well, he had right, done the exact same thing right. over the loss of your sister. The way he transformed his grief was to create a foundation exactly. in her honor. So you were, I mean, we yeah. do what we learn, what we what we see around well, yeah. us. Yeah, and you, you're aware of that, but um, I'd, I'd, like to, I'd like to explain that a little bit um, for, for a listener that we, the models that you speak of, the models that we see and how to deal with stuff, my father, in, like I had mentioned in 1990, created a nonprofit called Christina Smile. Christina was my sister. And this was many, many years after her loss, but he created this in the world to, uh, to provide access, full access to ages you know, 15 and under, the underserved population, that there's this epidemic of, of, of the need for dental health and tooth rot and decay, and these kids can't go to school and they can't think. So he created uh, an organization that was doing over a million dollars a year, at no, no cost, dentistry for these children in need and named it after my twin sister Christina his you know his his daughter and 
that was, in essence, what I understand potentially now, not even a conversation we had, but potentially his coping mechanism was to honor her, to give it a name. It wasn't something we ever talked about. So I was born in 77. It wasn't until 1990 that I was able to, and even probably 91 or two, a couple years into it, that I was even able to talk to my father about the name and what it meant and see him cry. Mm. Um, Wow. (laughs) Sorry, I get emotional to, 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 to think about that time, but that was his model. And that he had set for me. And so here it was in his, he's getting sick and he can no longer do the millions of dollars of care for these thousands and thousands of children because he has cancer. And so without thinking about it or completely unintentionally, there I go creating something uh, that's going to honor him and lift him up in, in, in his journey and help others on his behalf. So it happens a lot. It's not necessarily unique. I'm, I don't see myself as any sort of a, 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 revolutionary visionary here changing everything but that was the goal i just it allowed me to see that this is how this is the model that i'm given through my same sex parent you know my yeah. father on on how we we're going to cope with this loss and this grieving now at the same time through his diagnosis i think he did a lot of of work on himself and created a new model so what we saw in the years after his diagnosis left something with me um, that was much more about talking and energy work and self-help and kind mm-hmm. of a 180. So it was neat that he left that with me, um, that it is okay. and um, That it is okay to, to what? To, to look. For him, that he, that he understands it is okay for him to sit down and to talk about it and to, to not just joke about it and make jokes in the face of cancer, but see the reality of it. Um, I took him, he and I went on... Uh, he and I went on a trip when I was supposed to go to to a wedding in Italy and I couldn't make it and he had so many miles and he was like, well, what am, you know, he's What am I saving sick. my miles for? He's sick yeah. and he has a million yeah. miles so he wanted to go with me and we went to my friend's wedding in, in Italy and so we went for 11 days, <laughs> just the two of wow. us, to go travel through Italy together and that was where it was really transformative and not just trying to put himself in a happy world and a happy place and celebrate Italy and, you know, his first time over there and doing everything but really time on on boats and ferries and trains and rental cars to talk to him about um, real conversations about what's going on. And um, and so, yeah, that happens at the end, And but we, we still have 30 to 40 years of, of modeling and work that we have to do. But it gave me ho- gave me hope for kind of his transformation and in, in, in the lessons that he was trying to teach us. So it, it's been quite a bit of a roller coaster. I did until sitting down to do this, you know, it's not something that I really thought about the loss, um, as a child, but in getting to know you and talking about this, it's something that I think way more than we ever think about it. It's, it's one of those things in life that is inevitable. It's going to happen. And hundred percent. It's it's inevitable. It's going to happen. Um, and I'm very much shaped by the way my, my father, uh, my parents both treated and modeling me. And so now as a new father, well, I've had a son for a little while now, but we just had a new baby. And so with a new baby and, and a six-year-old son, I, I think almost every day. Yeah. Um, well, definitely every day, but more so I think heavily almost every day about everything I do, my actions and my modeling and what I do in opportunities to to not just shy away and push push things away, but to very early on in life for my children create that that notion of talking about it, understanding, trying to steer clear of a lot of anger 
but let them know anger is okay. You know, not go straight to anger, but then also let them know at the same time anger is okay, sadness is okay, and be sad together or be sad alone. So, um, it's been it is quite a journey, and I'm I'm bouncing I'm bouncing around kind of all over the place. But I I I think that in doing so, Christina Smile and the charity that my dad had started and ran for so long created what. I saw as how I was going to be able to honor him through an organization that was doing the same, creating change. Yeah. Wow. That's a phenomenal reflection. Thank you so much for sharing that. There's a couple of themes that I heard you talk about there. One is, um, again, I think you're, you're coming to recognize, and I think our listeners will recognize this too, the ways in which we learn how to cope, deal, communicate is is around us, even if it's not explicit, it's implicitly happening, which is might be frightening for some, but can also be actually really illuminating because all that does is invite us to sort of open our minds and reflect, look at the messages, look at the stories, and then choose for ourselves, sometimes with the help of a therapist, how do those messages resonate for me? Is that how I want to carry forward? Is that how I want to show up in the world? Is that what I want to model for my kids? So I think you being sort of open and vulnerable about your own growing awareness about that modeling and going forward. I think the other um, piece that really resonated for me about what you shared about how your dad showed up to process his grief and you did too, which is get real busy real quick, creating 80, 90 um, hours a week of work. I think that's very common. I think Mm -hmm. most of our listeners will understand that. I went back to work after two weeks. And as you know, because this is how we met, I moved to Texas and co-founded a nonprofit that helps (laughs) cancer patients and was working 80, 90 hours a week to create Mm -hmm. that. In his honor, so it, it in some ways it isn't necessarily a running from the grief or from the memory, but and I think sometimes we can get we can use busy as an excuse to not attend to the complex web of emotions that show up in grief and that we're often not equipped to handle, not just because our families don't model that, but as we sort of alluded to earlier, our sort of bigger, broader cultural message doesn't attend to that. Right. Have you thought, because you worked in sort of the corporate world and the mm-hmm. advertising world, um, about the sort of broader cultural influences, about attending to emotion, about speaking and being open about our mental health, and how we sort of, even your organization has to really fight against those sort of meta-cultural messages. I mean, everywhere you look, it's like top 10 tips to get happy today and have ripped abs and you know, whatever the sort of, you know, solutions, quick solution focuses. How have you started to recognize through doing your work at Flatwater the sort of bigger cultural messages around mental health, um, particularly around diagnosis? And and how are you personally and maybe with your organization combating those messages? Yeah, I think that the important thing is what you said. Uh, There are so many of them. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And so whether it's an app which uh, whether it's an app that's trying to alleviate our, our anxiety, uh, our fear, anxiety, our um, depression, our just fear of missing out, which is the irony of it's our phones and our, our smartphones and our hands and our apps that are creating that disconnect and that are making us anxious. The uh, As I sit here in this podcast and I have a phone in my pocket, which I shouldn't like can... any little buzz creates, um, you know, a trigger up to the brain that like, oh gosh, is that, what, what am I missing? Does somebody need to get a hold of me? 
all of that. And so what I've just realized is that we're creating all these things about culture to save us from the culture and cultural uh, pressures in society via culture and society. And so it's kind of created this endless loop. So what I do love most about it is if you start at this 30,000-foot concept of the importance that people are putting the time, effort, energy, VCs are funding, whatever you want to see it as, this movement, then yes, it is important. But what's really clear to us through our work as an organization is it's about you, how much you want to do, when you want to do it, and however you want to do it. And so I think what we like to start with is first and foremost, breathe. Like the apps that teach you how to breathe, you know how to breathe. The apps that teach you how to meditate. If, if, you, if you don't need to listen to a guided meditation, perhaps just unplug and turn off the lights and breathe for 20 seconds, whatever yeah. you can get, and, um, and reset. I teach my six-year-old all the time when going to bed, um, big breaths in and out. Absolutely. And it's that easy. And so it's some of those basics, because especially yeah. when you're talking about a traumatic loss or, or um, you know, just a significant loss, our fight flight response is kind right. of activated all the time. And culturally, I think we're sort of in a stress fight flight response. And so even doing something to get your parasympathetic nervous system kind of going and yeah, there's something almost relieving in a way about the simplicity of having access to your breath, which you have. Right. Everywhere you go, you right. know, you don't right. have to pay for an app or anything. It seemingly feels like it's taken away from you all the time, but it, it's there and you can do it. Um, I mean, I'm asthmatic, and I always make that joke that, that um, the gratitude that I can have for for not wheezing and having a, a, at least being able to breathe breathe clearly. Yeah. So the with the with the kids though, I think what Flatwater does is through our work, we're trying to spread the message of mental health, um, not just about taking care of that and, and approaching those things when cancer is in your life, but really the big broad message, because if you wait until cancer comes along, it's too late. Yeah. And so I think to answer that question, it's really all about every opportunity that you have to mindfully um, calm yourself, reset, um, even if it's like like with my son in a, you know, a bad report at school, or something as very simple as doing something, spilling water and feeling anxiety about, oh gosh, whatever. the smallest things. If we can always intentionally think about how we can get through them and what, what what's being triggered and what's happening to us in our body, we can be prepared for the things like a, um, you know, a, a cancer diagnosis, a prostate cancer diagnosis, a, a myoblastoma, a brain tumor. You know, more and more of the news is, is, is coming out all the time through our young friends and young children. And I really feel like it's not just about death. It's about those cliffs. And when we hit those cliffs and we fall off those cliffs and our emotions go from up to down really quickly, what are we doing in small little ways in practice to always practice being able to get through every single one of them? Um, and that doesn't mean not getting angry or not crying or not being sad. It just actually means, it means the opposite. It means yes. actually showing up and bearing witness to our right. own emotions and not trying to shut them down because we think we're going to hide them away in a little closet right. and we're not going to, but they just come roaring back. I right. often talk about our emotions like visitors who are trying to come over for a cup of coffee and they knock on the door and sometimes we get very scared of the anger, as you mentioned, or some of those emotions. And so we just shut the door and don't let them in. But the problem is, 
They're just hanging out on your doorstep when you open the door for the next thing. So it's that showing up and actually just inviting them in for a cup of coffee and, like, listening to what they have to say. Exactly. And so if you do that all the time every day, there's so many opportunities to do it. Well, then when you have the opportunity to work with a professional on it because uh, it's such a large thing like a cancer diagnosis or death or loss of a spouse, um, I really feel like it's great exercise. (laughs) And and, and you're going to be so much better prepared to get through those really big things because – you haven't been shoving stuff under the rug for decades uh, and pushing it aside. And we're also modeling. I think that's what, I'm, what I've learned most recently is, is it's not just about the stuff we're doing and the, 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 the notion that we're helping ourselves or our spouses, but it's the model that we put out there for the people that surround us, especially our children uh, and other generations and, and, and people that are watching. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah it's, it's – Grief is a sneaky bitch. Like Grief you said, it's on the doorstop trying to come drink your coffee. But it, <laughs> it, it, it's, it, I think that um, – I really think that uh, talking about it, and that's why we're doing what we're doing with Flatwater Foundation and trying to get yeah. people to talk and, and dive right in and work with a professional so that you can really get the full spectrum like you're like talking with you. Um, I mean this podcast is like therapy for me. It's making me oh. think about making me think about these things that we don't necessarily always think about because I do get very caught up in the work that we're doing trying to build a large organization. Well, we use often our – and I do, I'm guilty of this myself as a trained social worker and narrative therapist. We we often, many of us, retreat to our intellect and our mm-hmm. ego to exactly. sort of – right? We, we just – it's so much easier and safer. And it's also, by the way, it's rewarded by our culture to sort of process things these things with our intellect and our ego. And so it's no surprise that that's where you – and plus to run an organization – you need to be employing those parts of your brain and the invitation. And that's one of the reasons I do Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. It's one of the reasons I write daily invitations at Reimagining Grief is as much for myself, by the way, as my followers and my listeners is an invitation to take a beat, listen to the stories that are in my head, listen to the stories that my emotions are trying to tell me, whether it's my emotion, my emotions of joy, because some days I feel overwhelmed with gratitude that I got to have 12 years of loving relationship with my late husband, Eric. And some days it's absolute dread and horror. I woke up this morning after having a very vivid dream about my late husband where Mm. I had to tell him in the dream that he was dead. Mm. Whatever those things are, we we try to retreat either to ignoring or we retreat to the sort of intellectual brain. And we can't live every day walking around just, you know, I always say like zend out in our emotional state and in touch with our emotions. And because most of us are so much more geared to sort of float up to the intellectual level, whatever invitations like therapy that's provided through Flatwater Foundation, like listening to podcasts like this, journaling, conversations with friends, is allowing us to get so much more practiced at showing up for ourselves, being kind and compassionate to our own emotional state. And the gift of that is because many of us feel selfish when we do that, it feels indulgent. We're taught, you know, that right. that's self-indulgent. Is that when we can do that better, we actually are so much more able to show up and hold space and bear witness for those other people in our life. And we can't do that unless we know how to do it for ourselves. Hey, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about something I'm really thrilled about. It's a collection of empathy cards I just launched, and they're available now at reimagininggrief.com forward slash empathy. Ultimately, these cards 
came out of my own frustration with the ones I received after my husband Eric died in my arms in 2011. Since that time, I lost a close friend and have searched in vain to find meaningful cards to send friends and clients and colleagues. Frustrated with my lack of options, I would inevitably buy a blank card and fill in my own message. Last year, I found myself going through the box of cards I have kept since my husband's memorial service eight years ago. Oof. While their intentions were good, the majority of the cards people sent were full of messages that felt insincere and disconnected to my experience. Or, frankly, included harmful sayings and expressions like, he's in a better place now, or at least he isn't suffering anymore. The other thing I noticed is they also stopped after a few weeks. And what I know for sure, as a social worker, trained narrative therapist, and a widow, is that language matters, and not showing up for someone in their grief isn't an option. So each of these messages reflects my own understanding of what is needed by someone in one of the darkest times of their lives. That means none of these cards try to convince them that things are going to be okay or that they should hurry up and move on. Instead, these words are meant to assure the bereaved that they are seen and held exactly as they are in their grief journey. And they're meant to give you, the person wanting to show up for someone in their grief, the tools you need to show up and keep showing up. So please head over to www.reimagininggrief.com forward slash empathy to check it out. Speaking of showing up for ourselves and for others, next I asked Mark about what that has looked like in his life since losing his father six years ago. So that makes me wonder for you, what has been your experience, maybe around the time that your father passed and even since then, how how have you seen people showing up and holding space and bearing witness to you and your pain over your loss? What what sometimes were maybe the not helpful things? What were the helpful things? What sure. what did you discover along the way? Um, there's there's a recurring notion. So I put my story out there as part of the organization, and, and you know we started this or created the organization, created Flatwater Foundation from my personal experience. But it's not about me, and I try to be very intentional, and I say that a lot. It's not about me. I bring out my story as an example. Um, but in, that, in an essence, the part that's about me is that this is my story, and I have to own it and be comfortable with it. But it's not about me um, in the sense that that's the focus of the organization. It's about this this grandiose need to inform and get people access to care. And so the recurring thing is it comes often from our network of now 100, 125 therapists in the Austin area when I'm going through stuff and managing is, is hey, I hope you're taking some time for yourself. <laughs> I hope you, I see what you're doing. I saw this and thank you for doing the thing. But I hope you are taking some time for yourself to take care of your own mental health. Yeah. And um, whether it's because they're trained professionals or because they see something in me um, in our meetings or in stress uh, indicators, et cetera. I think that's something that has been incredibly powerful for me to just 
something that simple. People yeah. saying, this is great, but what about you? Are you taking that? And, and knocking me back into a, oh, no, I'm not. Checking haven't in been. internally. Yeah, checking, yeah, and having all these people around you that have surrounded you in this new world and this career of making sure that you're checking in. I wish we, there could be a whole lot more of that in the corporate world um, that I, I was in large agencies in New York and San Francisco where we had – it was more celebrated for management and for others to say, you know, hey, just checking in. How are you? Are you taking some time off? Do you Are you – do you feel balanced? Are you okay? And I know that's not the culture that we live in, and this yeah. comes back a little bit to what you were talking about before. But I know that's I'm a capitalist. I'm you know I'm a yeah. realist. I'm a business. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm, I'm I'm all these things. I'm very driven by business opportunities. So spending this time for the last decade being told at work by my colleagues, right. "Hey, are you taking slow some down? Time? Yeah, are you taking some time for yourself?" And feeling like no, and honestly being able to say no, I'm not. Uh, without seeking attention or and how are you using that invitation to what are you doing with that invitation so um so it reminds me that if it's been a while since i had scheduled my last therapy appointment with a therapist or gotten online i actually was able to do some great great care through an online provider called BetterHelp for a little while as well um not just in person with a therapist but for a while i i I think that's a big part of our future of, of mental health yeah. care and, and therapy. And so I wanted to practice it for a year myself with video chats with a therapist and text. And so it would just remind me to get on, um, book an appointment to level set because I went from just not being able to think about anything else but the following Thursday. I can't wait for next Thursday. I can't wait for next Thursday when I would go see my therapist to just getting, again, buried by work. And, yeah. and everything yeah. that was happening. And, and it would manifest itself apparently in a way that would allow one of my colleagues to say, hey. Dude, <laughs> I see something in the, you. Yeah, go, yeah. Yeah. Not, are you taking time for yourself? So um, I, I, I think that's been something that's been incredible. And it reminds me to do that for others. It doesn't have to, you don't have to be running a, a nonprofit that provides therapy. You can no. be doing anything or not even, it doesn't have to be work. It can just be at home with my wife. Um, with a friend or just modeling that for other friends. Uh, I say that often, you know, holding space and bearing witness and showing up for people in their pain. We all struggle with it so hard. And, you know, one of my guests recently said uh, a friend of hers who happened to be a psychologist modeled it so beautifully for her one day. And one of the things we talked about is that's wonderful and it doesn't take a master's in social work like I have or a PhD or a psychology degree to be able to do that. And it doesn't always look like even pointed questions like your friends the therapist asked. Sometimes it's just showing up and sort of literally in your physical body modeling a kind of low energy, a kind of quiet space, a kind of checking in, not challenging you, are you seeing a therapist, but just more like, hey – I'm feeling like there's a lot of stress and movement in the world. How about we go yeah. for a walk? You know, just a real slowness. Well, a good example of that would be our own homes that we spend so much time in. You can really create a space in your home or your bedroom or your sheets or something that's really going to provide you that joy, that's going to spark it in you. Or if it's a quiet space that's dedicated to nothing, um, whether it's incense or a smell or some sort of trigger that really puts you in a really happy place with a diffuser, um, with essential oils, that's what I really fine works for, for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it, I was reminded of that in, in one of Julia, one of our, one of our providers, I said, we're up to about 125 therapists in the, in the community that have agreed to accept a sliding scale from us in exchange for receiving referrals from our cancer centers. 
um, our partners at the cancer centers and, and other cancer nonprofits. And so I'm always going to, I mean, hundreds of therapist offices. And the other day I went to one that was a kind of in a shed, um, a very modified, very nice shed um, space in the backyard of their house as their therapy office. And I walk in and it's just so zenned out and it has a, like a, this futon style sort of mattress for seating and smells incredible. And there's not, a, you know, it's just a very simple space. Um, shoes off at the door. And, and it was something so simple as that was I'm not going there for care and for therapy, but I took a huge uh, interest in wanting to help spread kind of the vision of what this space looks like and how can we personify this to help you and your potential clients understand this. Um, or it's our equine therapy program that's out in Wimberley. You just drive through that ranch gate, you know, the drive through the trees out there, and then just being in there and getting on the property. It's a, it's a more limited program that we have because the capacities are much smaller. But for for certain clients, yeah. it's everything. Talk therapy might not have worked. And it's not right. riding therapy. It's energy work with the horses. But just showing up for me often is is that's blood pressure drops, the, everything changes. And There's so, so much noise in our yeah. world, right? I mean, te- you were talking earlier yeah. about the phone buzzing in your pocket, you know, noise, lights, technology, everything, mm-hmm. and which is a solace to us often when we don't want to hear the noise in our head. Right. And so creating physical spaces, mental spaces, using breathing, the practices that you talk about, I think for some of us, to be honest, if we're honest with ourselves, make us nervous. Like mm-hmm. those first few minutes in silent meditation or those first few minutes in a quiet space, I don't know for you, I especially early on, I felt kind of, I could feel like my, I could feel my body getting revved up because it was like, oh no, if it's too quiet, then I'm going to start hearing all the, all, all the crazy thoughts that are going on in my head, which means that's the invitation to all of us is you don't have to go from like avoiding your feelings to diving deep into sitting, you know, and exploring everything. But how do we sort of create practices where mm-hmm. we sort of dip our toes into that, right. to that experience? Right. And in, in, in intentionally, but intentionally put them in places that, that can, like you said, be an uninvited in, create opportunities for them to be uninvited guests um, on their own. Yeah. But in a manner that uh, that can be beneficial. And what I mean is, like I said, simple spaces in your home or stuff around you um, that you interact with that constantly remind you to take a breath, to take a step back, um, or um, remind you of, of what we're grateful for. It's it's. And on top of that, it's about the, the the people that we choose to spend our time with, right? Like it's not just the spaces and the physical things, but also the personalities and the people we surround ourselves with every day. Um, I'm blessed because we have colleagues of 125 therapists. That I mean, not with. all of us can but, hang out yeah, with fellow therapists. Yeah, but. yeah. and I, I have no disclosure. I have no mental health background, no mental health training. Um, I'm not a, a licensed social worker or, you know, I'm, like I said, I was an ad guy. I was a... a, 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 a you know, a guy selling, working at ad agencies to sell cell phones and cars and products. But now we're really trying to push this message because I think it's, I've seen the benefits and seen the value, but it's really about creating a conversation and, uh, and, and getting people to see the value. Yeah. Have you stayed in contact with your advertising folks over the, over the years since you created the foundation? And how do you think you're showing up differently in conversations with them and, do you see any ways in which what you're doing is influencing how they're showing up in their personal life or maybe even their work culture? Yes, I had the opportunity to work with some of the greatest uh, in the business. 
And like I said, I worked at large agencies in, in major cities. And fun part, I do keep in touch with them. And some of them have since moved back to, or not moved back, but moved to Austin, Texas. Um, and others are still all over the country. And so I do keep in touch with our colleagues. It's a small world when you work in that business of global yeah. agencies. And what we're able to do is create an image, create a brand, um, our logo, create video, spread the message with <laughs> with a much more professional sort of look and feel that one might expect from a two-person nonprofit. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I do utilize those. But what I also have found out is anecdotally to share a quick story, yeah. I get so afraid of using these people too much or asking too much of a favor because I'm so in love with the work they do, but we might not have the real huge budgets that they are worth, that you know, they're the used billable to. hours that they're used to or that they really deserve. And so I get really anxious about um, those relationships and not wanting to abuse them, but also create an opportunity to work together because I'm so fortunate for what they can do and that they are able to. And so I think the message for me has been um, a lot of them – after so many years of helping out and doing stuff and me saying, you know, I'm sorry I didn't reach out or I, I felt like I didn't want to go to the well too many times or they're like, no, 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 what can I do? It's I've had a few of them come back and say, you know what? I do so much every day on these corporate clients and on these products and on these, you know, whatever it might be, these hard goods, soft goods. I love the time it takes, whether it's at night or in the morning or right in the middle of my workday. I love the time I can take to create something with my same skills for this cause, for mental health, for therapy, for taking care of these families, it brings me back. So they have told me on multiple occasions, and I'm not I'm still not gonna abuse that. I'm no, still very I'm course. still very yeah, <laughs> still yeah. very scared to, to go to the well for, for a lot of people. But it's a reminder that sometimes you can use your own creative your creative skills and your your work that you do um, as long as it's not in, as long as it's not a way that's going to bury you, right? Like yeah. I did using my yeah. skills and my corporate work to go just create 80, 90 hour weeks. But if it can be a little touch point, and if it's not for the Flatwater Foundation, whatever your skills are for any cause, yeah, any yeah. need, um, it was a really good reminder to me that we've created an opportunity for others to use what we do as a vehicle for themselves to give back yeah. and to use their skills. And so I think that from a from a my past world and from the ad agency folks and creatives, I think it's been a pretty nice. Um, evolution of all the experiences I've had to bring them together and find this purpose to create, use that to create a movement and and, and get more people inspired to, to take care of themselves. Yeah. I mean, in that way, in that act of sort of calling in favors and reconnecting with those old folks, you are uh, may possibly be giving them a gift to slow down themselves, think about their own need for therapy and help. I mean, even in just doing the creative work for you, I can imagine those they're daily bombarded by, as you said, hard goods and soft goods and products and, you mm -hmm. know, growth and scale and business. And so to even do a work project that reminds them that there are people out there and by saying people out there, meaning people in here, like we all, we all. are needing this thing. So that's a gift. Yeah. So it's been great. Um, again, not to say that uh, that we're entitled to that. I, 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 it is a giant, I have such gratitude as a giant blessing. Um, but it is it is fun. It one one thing that my dad in his passing did try very hard intentionally to leave with me was that, you know, 
gratitude is very important and saying thank you, thank you for this, thank you for this. But you know what? In the end, they're not trying to support you, Mark. And that's what, it's not about you. They, they might be. You might be the face of it. You might be doing it. But what you have to remember is what we, he's a founding board member, and you as an individual create um, because of this grief and loss and then eventually his passing because we knew it was inevitable. Yeah. Uh, can also create opportunities for others to practice how they would like to approach grief for themselves Absolutely. and give them a, a means or a vehicle to participate in Damn That Cancer and Tyler's Damn That Cancer, the paddleboard event, or run the Berlin Marathon for Flatwater Foundation. Remember, you've created something that doesn't have to be a thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for, to, to them, but can be... A way for them to process their right. own exactly. mental health, their own grief journey, their own loss... Or even prepare them for that inevitable day when they're facing that themselves. Exactly. And that's what we have to understand in, 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 in doing so. And so I think that was a big lifelong lesson that I was able to get in his passing. And so now through grief, um, you know, we, we were, ne- <laughs> we were, ne- we don't have a long enough time on a podcast to talk about kind of what in his passing and in, in what happened. But with my father's, with my father's passing, I, I, I was never able to get that grief, um, that celebration, that ceremony, anything that had happened, um, situations kind of came through in his passing, um, in cremation. My dad was actually, I'd, I'd, he had gotten divorced, separated and divorced from my mother after 47 years early on oh in his my. diagnosis. And so many years later, he, um, he had a caregiver that essentially kind of came into his life and changed the dynamic kind of within our family of, 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 um, how how we all hand, yeah how it was all handled and how it went through and so there wasn't a for us a final ceremony the last time I saw my dad he was wheeled out of a house by the mm. coroner um, and that was it that was the last time I had seen it so I still to this day six years later am processing kind of what that means and not having a funeral yeah. um, or a ceremony uh, to do so and so I think for me it's even bigger, stronger, harder work that has to take place when somebody doesn't create the vehicle, the venue for yeah. which... Uh, for, for you to do it, that. It, just build it up and create it. Yeah, well, and we started this conversation earlier today by you reflecting that one of the most powerful influences in terms of early learning around grief was going to your friend's father's funeral, funeral and that right. the whole idea of having a service, a memorial, a place to celebrate. And actually, my last guest talked about that because she also had a loss that didn't because of culture and judgment and shame, didn't allow for an actual ceremony. She mm-hmm. created one five years after right. the loss. But you started out by saying what an important lesson that was for you in terms of your friend going through their grief journey. And here you are saying sort of six years later that you didn't get to have that kind of – I don't want to say closure because that's a yeah, dumb word. It, but no, you didn't get to have that moment of sort of ceremony and, and, and honoring. Have you thought at all about – how you might create something for yourself, for your wife, for your kids in honor of your dad? Or how mm-hmm. have you thought about reclaiming the importance of that? So um, we think about it a lot, and here's what we ended up doing. Uh, we didn't have a ceremony. We didn't have anything about that. But what, <laughs> through those early models and what we figured was the right thing for us to do in celebration, was I'm the youngest of four kids, um, older brother, two sisters, and then myself, And so what we did starting the year, exactly one year after all of that went down, the loss of my father um, in November of 2013, 
we decided every year on that weekend of the day of his passing, the four kids who have lives all over the country, never spend any time together as four, maybe, maybe at Christmas or maybe Thanksgiving, but usually right. not. We all have families and live all over the place. We dedicate that um, that one weekend to get the four kids together if possible. Um, sometimes it's not, but the four of us get together and do um, just celebrate <laughs> Celebrate your dad. Four, yeah, this that that we have the four of us um, that uh, in honor of my dad and celebrate him is it's it's hard for me to even just talk about that weekend um, right now. I'm getting just getting emotional thinking about it. We just we just had it last November, but mm-hmm. um, something simple. I mean, they've been huge. They've been some have been huge. Um, joining a, a work trip for my sister and buying plane tickets to go where she had to be in Italy for work to. Uh, Amarillo, where one of my sisters lives for the weekend, to staying and, and going down to San Antonio um, this pa- this past year. Um, it doesn't have to be big and boisterous, but it can be just as important. So, it's about pausing. We yes, we we actually we all exactly that's it. We all pause. Sometimes we have spouses because that's important too to surround ourselves. And sometimes just the four kids. We call us the four kids. I mean, mm-hmm. we're all in our forties. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but yeah, to me, it's it's that's what we created, and so that's kind of ceremonially. Um, it's not it's not a it's not a big celebration or a you know throwing of ashes into the into the water, which was um, that did happen and that did occur, but with you know with, with the others other exactly with others. Yeah. Um, but we were in a tough position and, and, and weren't given weren't given the ability to take some of those ashes. It was it was denied to us. And so, um, so that's reclaimed. what we decided, yeah, kind of what we decided to do to reclaim it and celebrate it and kind of, you know, we can do this every single year um, because it's not going to leave us. So that helps. That helps us get through. But um, I really feel like the biggest part of my – the biggest challenge that I've had and the biggest hardest, hardest part of grief and me coming to terms with the grief was the loss of the ability – to do that uh, at the time I wanted to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it sticks with me forever. Well, there's something in that, there's already something about a loss that is a ripping apart of a relationship. And a ch- I call grief kind of a tearing apart of our life manuscript. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when someone we love is lost, the manuscript of our life gets shredded and handed back to us, you know, to like, okay, just, you don't have any lines anymore, but figure it out, you know, like yeah. go forward, play forward. So loss is already a tearing of your manuscript, and it sounds like what has, had happened in your family was an additional loss, which was a denial to your claim to be able to do right. that work. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And it was, it was, there was a lot going on with that. Um, it complicated quite a bit. So I really think all of that fed into the importance of what we're doing with Flatwater Foundation and why, yeah. <laughs> why I don't yeah. want, you know, the, the harder that things got for me, um, I don't want others to have to feel that they can't get the help and support that they deserve. Right. And to be able to figure out ways to find their own path in their grief journey, both before the death, because as you said, we end up, for so many people, there's that period of sort of ambiguous loss mm-hmm. during the, uh, during a chronic illness or some other illness, but also doing that preparation work so that you can find your own way of grieving. Because the truth is, I think there's also a myth that there's just like one right way to grieve and it looks like this one thing. And then if you're not doing that, then somehow you're messed up. And my my hope is shows like this, 
the writing that many of us do on grief, the therapy that your therapists are providing, invite people to understand there's a million different ways to navigate a grief journey. And really, our invitation to ourselves is to find the find the path that works from for us, right. for each of us. Right. Yeah. And that's sort of the work that you've been doing. And your sisters, your sisters and your brother and yourself created one of the ways in which you guys are doing your grief journey by claiming or reclaiming a right. way to memorialize and honor in an ongoing in an ongoing manner i think that was important to us is to always know that like i used to look forward to my ther- thursdays for therapy now <laughs> i look forward to my novembers for that you know annual ongoing kind of opportunity to do grieve honor celebrate um and be okay like really being being Feeling all of the emotions that you want to feel, yeah, um, and being sure that that you keep them with us, that it, it's not gone um, and put away forever. No, hashtag feel all the feels. Yeah, feel all the feels <laughs> together as as the four kids. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. A few years after my husband died, I relocated to Austin, Texas, with my daughter for a fresh start in a new environment. I immediately joined an inspirational young woman to co-found a nonprofit program here in Austin called the CareBox program. It delivers care supplies to cancer patients and is still serving patients today. During that time, I discovered the work Mark was doing with the Flatwater Foundation as we were both supporting cancer patients and their families. What Mark didn't know until shortly before this interview is that my daughter and I have benefited from the services they provide over the past five years. As a trained social worker and therapist, I have long understood the importance of taking care of your mental health as well as your physical health. And as a newly widowed and single mom working in nonprofit, I couldn't afford the help we needed. Flatwater Foundation was a gift. So as you can see, I can really relate to and identify with Mark about turning his loss into something that helps others. I also see in him many of the tendencies I have, especially earlier in my grief journey, to intellectualize the experience and not feel the feelings. So next, I asked Mark to share from a more personal vantage point what he wished he would have known before his father's illness. What has he learned in the intervening years that might be helpful to somebody who may be sitting by the bedside of a loved one at the hospital right now? Yes, absolutely. I think now with kind of just the focus on the comfort um, and the comfort with that, you know, being able to invite those questions and invite those concerns, the way that we speak to people that are going through it and how we encourage them to get the care that, that we are creating, creating um, through Flatwater, personally, I think I would I would love to kind of go back and 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 I remember through the news and the fear and everything that was just that it was just a lot of fear and a lot of unknown and not a lot of spoken words and there weren't any there weren't many questions and I think mm. that we are often very afraid to ask questions because we know the reality is that they're going to come with answers right and, and they're not the answers we, we want hear. yeah right and so I think that. Um, I think that in going through what I've learned in the past decade to rewind, you know, early on this decade with what we went through with a diagnosis in 2013, I would really 
kind of summons the that energy and that power and that empowerment to ask those questions, to want to know more, to feel feel um, safe to be space. curious. Yeah, feel that space to with the with the notion that it's okay to to not just be curious, but to be to to, to inspect and gain introspect and look and examine and understand and not just dive in, see the scary stuff and pull back and then try to try to process what that pullback was um, and what you saw and or leap into action as yeah, you said exactly how we're going to get through it and what the plan of action is going to be um, there can be a whole lot more time energy effort brain spent on getting answers asking questions and talking right away mm-hmm. rather than um, just dialing back and being afraid and, yeah. and, and jumping in uh, with a with a with a feeling of fear. There was a lot of fear and a lot of what is, and a lot of unknowns and what is, you know, what does that mean? What does that mean? But I don't think we ever, I think we spend a lot of time feeling like, what does that mean? But I don't really recall a whole lot of asking, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it could have been that simple. Uh, and when you're talking about being exploring and, and asking questions, it's really almost not so much about the practical, how do we treat this particular illness, but more about asking the questions about, like, what does this mean for us emotionally and our mm-hmm. relationships with one another? Is that is that the invitation there? It is. I, I will say, too, that um, I told you we went on that trip to Italy, and I was was seen by kind of some of the other people in my family as, what are you doing? And we're going through se- they're going through a separation and a divorce, like a lot of anger about dad and frustration with mom, but definitely a lot of anger about dad and his decision to separate and then divorce from mom. And in the time I decided, you know what, I don't care. I'm going to Italy. I'm going to make that memory. I'm going to go do yeah. it. And it, yeah. it's, it's gotten me through this and will get me through many more years of my life with a different understanding. So um, the other thing I would, would wish not wish, but the other thing that in retrospect I would go back is the feelings that we have now from others saying like, oh, wow, that trip was a good idea and I'm glad you were able to do that. Knowing what I know now and knowing what they know now, it would be able to tell that story before it ever happened and say, you know what, this is a very limited opportunity. When it's over, it's over yeah. um, in passing. But at the same time, know that we have the time on this earth now to create those opportunities and in, 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 in Memories that we can, and while even if they're not perfect or right. look like what we think they quote unquote should look right. like, which I hate that word. Yeah, but I, I they, but when they, when they, when it happens, when it's over, it's over, and giving yourself that fodder, that opportunity, those thoughts and memories to be able to, um, to think about after in life, in passing, and then in death, to continue in life and to continue. We are going to celebrate. Um, we just have to remember that it's okay to be sad and angry and all of that, but we are going to want to celebrate these people and create these memories. And so for me now, um, I would have done more to create as many. I feel like I did okay, but to create as many and more. And so um, mm-hmm. things to 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 pull from and to think about and to understand and honor and even be sad about. Even things to be very sad about and things to be angry about. Yeah. Are, they're kind of all one in the same. But to be me. present in those moments, in those early diagnosis Correct. moments, about being present and capturing the memories, because while a trip to Italy is amazing and an mm-hmm. incredible opportunity to create really special memories, memories can be made exactly. sitting in the chair in the waiting room at the lobby at the doctor's office. Memories can be made, but how do we slow down enough to be present in those moments to sort of absorb and yes. be curious and have conversations and absorb those memories that will 
we are going to need as we carry their memory forward after they've after they're gone. Exactly. I mean, it's just sitting in the room in the couch with somebody when you know. <laughs> I'll be frank. When you, when they're very sick and you know there are smells and there are emotions and there are feelings, it's very uncomfortable. There's a lot of discomfort. But really understanding why you just need to get comfortable yeah. and be there and be by somebody's side. Um, I think it comes down to 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 that. It's not about going on a trip or getting on a plane or going. It's yeah. time spent, um, effort, energy, and 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 really being present. Being present. Yeah, yeah, being present because there is going to come a day when you would do anything to sit in that uncomfortable yes. chair, smelling those horrible smells, right. hearing the sounds and the beeps of the things in the hospital, whatever, that you would do anything to at least have that moment back. So, exactly. So how do you spend time in that moment savoring it? Exactly. Yeah. Mark, thank you so much for coming on Grief as a Sneaky Bitch today. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. I appreciate your openness and your vulnerability. And, of course, I appreciate the work that you're doing to help families with the Flatwater Foundation. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the work you're doing. And Grief is a very sneaky bitch. <laughs> and the more the more we talk about something, uh, the less sneaky it has the ability to be. And I love what you're doing with that. And that's really the message that we want to share out there. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. I so appreciate Mark sharing his passion and dedication around carrying on a legacy of honoring in his work at Flatwater Foundation. I'm even more inspired by his realness in acknowledging that he sometimes struggles with doing his own grief work, as my previous guest, Kelly Abbott, describes it. I'm grateful to you for listening to another episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, and I'm thrilled to share that we have more incredible interviews coming your way this season. Next up is a fascinating conversation I had with Renee Rouleau of Renee Rouleau Skincare. She is a powerhouse CEO of a skincare line used by celebrities who is transforming the loss of her business partner and husband into a shining light that is guiding her path forward. I also wanted to take a moment to remind you that I have launched a Patreon campaign. I would love a handful of listeners to come along this journey with me by investing in the podcast series. In fact, I want to give special thanks to my first patron, Susan Schreiber, who signed up last week. I could really use your support, and in exchange, you will get some way cool perks like Grief is a Sneaky Bitch stickers, t-shirts, behind-the-scenes vlogs of my challenges and triumphs, and so much more. Please visit my Patreon page to learn more about how you can accompany me on this journey. You can find the link in my show notes. This is Lisa Kefauver, creator and host of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. Thank you so much for joining me today. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.